Uh, Lord, I just pray tonight that uh, you help us to engage the Bible and to study your word and uh, help us all learn from it and each other. Amen. So, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. In my version, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Um, some verses, or some versions of the Bible, instead of steadfastness, it says patience, which, you know, it's, it's all good, but, uh, one of the things, you know, I was just talking to Marie about, you know, the fact two years ago, we went through the flood in Oneida, and, you know, we lost everything. And when I read this verse, I immediately think of that. That's what I go to, because that was, believe it or not, the second most traumatic thing that we've endured uh, since Lucy and I got married, and but it was in that same time period. But... I never really understood, especially as a younger Christian, how you're supposed to count it joy when you in you know when you endure trials because you know he's not talking about trials like you know ooh you know I stubbed my toe whoops you know uh, James is writing this to a church that is being persecuted and killed for their belief and he's telling them count it joy and it really wasn't until the flood that I realized myself that the type of joy that he's talking about here isn't the temporal joy that we think about when you know we somebody throws us a surprise party or you know we get a really cool uh, gadget or something like that you know those little things that are like ooh you know a little bit of happiness um, and the Bible does use the words joy and happiness interchangeably but the type of joy here that he and the type of happiness he's talking about here is something that transcends what this world has to offer at all. You know, there uh, the weirdest part, and I don't know how to describe it any other way, is when you take a look and you realize that you literally have nothing left except each other and Jesus. It's like, wow, <laughs> you know, you, um. I've heard the cliched saying, but it's not really cliche, it's true. You know, you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. And, uh, you know, I saw that uh, play out in our lives. But at the same time, I wasn't counting it joy that <laughs> that happened. I wasn't counting it joy the things that transpired after that. You know, people started to reveal their true character during that. And one of the things I've noticed in life is that when times of trial come... Uh, there are people who take advantage of that. They'll, if they have their own set agenda, they'll use the chaos over here to push something through, you know, while nobody's paying attention. You know, ooh, be distracted by the puppets over here so that, uh, you know, I can do this over here. When it comes to, like, politics, my father always told me, you know, always watch what the other hand is doing. Because odds are if they're dangling something over here, there's something they're trying to hide over here. But it's the same thing sometimes with people. You know, they're doing this, they're making a big squeaky noise over here so that you're not paying attention to this over here. Um, the difference between biblical joy and the difference between worldly joy comes from the perspective 
with which you experience it. Worldly joy is something where you fixate on something that's temporary. It's a feeling, a sensation, a moment that's going to come and go. And it, that's it. It's a vapor. You know, it's fantastic when they happen. You know, God is gracious and he gives us these good things in our lives. But those temporary joys, they come and they go. And people will become so addicted to those things those highs of emotion, you know, that that's, that's what they start to seek. Um, I go back to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter's up there uh, with the other two that I can't remember their names off the top of my head, unfortunately. But they see Jesus in his glorified state, and they say, we're going to build a tabernacle right here! And Jesus is all like, no, you're missing the point. See, they wanted to camp at that mountaintop experience. And we, as people, have it, myself included, we have a temptation set before us to try and live on top of the mountain. But the scriptures make it very clear that those mountaintop experiences are just that. They're experiences. There's going to be highs, there's going to be lows. You know, there is uh, the still and peaceful waters, and then sometimes there's the valley of the shadow of death. But how do, what, how do we keep joy, like a real joy, in the midst of all of that? It comes from what our perspective is. Tony was telling me a story about a preacher he was listening to a sermon from today. He kept his one, the only thing he had on his wall in his office was a plaque, and it said eternity. So that way he would operate with, it would remind him to remember to operate in the light of eternity. In everything he did in ministry, and the way that he lived his life, the decisions that he made, the way he treated people, he would want to do those all in light of eternity. And especially in our microwave culture, I, I mentioned this to Vi beforehand, you know, the Keurig machine is the personification of what we as Americans are as a country. We want our caffeinated stimulant drink now, 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 now! <laughs> I don't want to wait 12 minutes for a pot to brew. I want it right now. And... That's not, you know, that's not thinking, you know, eternally. That's instant gratification. But we, we tend as humans to drift towards dealing with the temporary things from a temporary mindset because what we're feeling with this body, you know, it sends signals to our brain that are very real. <laughs> and, it, and this is how we're interpreting the world. Um, one of the things that annoys me most, there's some... Uh, lines of Christianity where they, and but for anyone who's listening, I put that in air quotes, um, <laughs> they diminish pain. They, you know, if you, if you, if something devastating happens to you and you take a moment to mourn that, they call you weak. They say you lack faith. And they forget about the fact that Jesus himself, self, who knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, took the moment to weep to weep over the loss of his friends, to, uh, to weep over the sadness that he saw in uh, Lazarus's sisters. I don't want talking about this type of joy to diminish the realness of pain and of hurt in this world because Jesus acknowledged himself, in this world you'll have trouble, you'll have tribulation. 
this world is a fallen place. <laughs> it's very fallen. If you've watched the news at all in the past, ooh, ever, you know it's a fallen place. And to try and, you know, we've been translated into a new kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever. That does not, that does not mean the pain that we experience isn't real. And, you know, sometimes we need to deal with that. But this joy, this joy that we get, it's not about what we're experiencing as much as it is about what we will someday experience. It's about having the eternal perspective. I've seen other people teach this in the way that, you know, we actually rejoice in the suffering. You know, because the, uh, you know, because the apostles were crucified and, you know, whipped and stoned and flogged that, you know, you know, we should enjoy that. I think they get it wrong. At, at no point did, you know, at any point when Paul was getting whipped, did he say, oh, please, sir, may I have another? That's not why he was counting it joy. He didn't enjoy it. What he understood was, is that in light of eternity, this all served a purpose, and that God would take even these things and turn them around for good. We rejoice in the testing of our faith because of what it produces in our lives and because of the perspective that we have. Steadfastness. Some call it patience. God uses everything, the book of Romans says, everything to turn it around for our good and his glory. Everything bad that happens to us. It's not saying... And I've heard other people say, oh, that means God causes bad things. No, God is sovereign enough to realize that Satan is evil, people are stupid, and that he will even use those things to benefit us and others somehow in the end. Because he's that good. I remember the first night that I was sitting, <laughs> at the first night of the flood, I remember I was actually working at the church that I was working at at the time, and I was manning the phones and organizing, uh, you know, operations between different local areas and trying to get stuff together. And it took somebody coming up to me, literally grabbing me by the shoulders and saying, Mike, you need to stop. <laughs> you have to realize you just lost everything. <laughs> Take a minute. You got a plan for yourself. And I remember in that moment, I went and I just sat down someplace and... I realized how everything in this world can be taken away in an instant. So to put my hope in anything in this world means that it could be destroyed in a moment. Just like that. As, as quick as a levee breaking and water coming in and taking everything away. But through that, God took that and he turned it around and... Not only did he strengthen friendships, he, you know, frankly gave us a lifestyle upgrade. I don't know what other way to put it. You know, not because we needed it, but because he's good. Um, he took us out of a very bad place, and he showed me through it all that in the midst of suffering, our joy comes in the fact that no matter what the trial, God's got our back, no matter what. No matter our fault, no matter our failing, no matter our our trial or who harms us, how they harm us. 
God, the, the God of the universe, loves us and will turn that around for our good. And in that, as we wait that and we watch that play out, that develops in us a steadfastness to know that, you know, <laughs> I wish I had had this perspective when I was a young Christian, but you know what? It took going through these trials to realize, you know, that regardless of whatever I face as a Christian or my family faces, we can have joy in the fact that not only will God make it work out for us, but that it's going to build our character and it's going to build our trust in him. That's the thing that I learned most is that I never have to worry about God abandoning us. I never have to worry about him doing anything evil to us. I never have to worry about him taking advantage of us. He was faithful and steadfast through it all. Even as I was a whiny little crybaby. And this brings me to my next point. Uh, there, there were people that during that time, as we mourned the loss of what we had, you know, they kept saying that it was showing that we lacked faith and uh, it got to one point where somebody even said that God caused the flood to teach us a lesson. That goes back to my point where Satan is evil and people are stupid. <laughs> but there's this this fallacy that... You know, I was in a church that taught this for a very long time. If you're facing trial in your life, if something's not going right, that means you're doing something wrong. They, 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 you know, if you're struggling with your finances, if you are struggling with your health, if any of those things, you know, if you're not, you know, seeing the answers to your prayers one after another, you lack faith. And... You know, as a side note, they even put out, you know, I, I had one person uh, who was, you know, dogging on us during that time period say, if you know, the weakest prayer of faith that you can pray is, oh, oh Lord, your will be done, because that means you don't have any faith for anything. I personally beg to differ, because the greatest prayer of faith that I can see in the Bible is when Jesus submitted himself to the Father and said, but nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. Because he knew the character of the Father, he knew the purpose of what was what was why he was going to go through it, and that regardless of the suffering he endured for a temporary basis, it was worth it to pay now and play later. So just because you're suffering, and we humans, I do it, and I don't know if it was because it was drilled in me as a faulty human, or because frankly, you know what, my first years in Christianity were spent in a line of teaching that really wasn't good but somewhere in the line my my default thing became okay something's going wrong god's punishing me that is not the case all of god's punishment for you and your mistakes my mistakes was poured out on jesus at the cross god no longer punishes his kids he'll discipline them and there's a distinct difference because when god punishes you know, his punishment isn't a spanking. God's punishment is, boom, hell, done. <laughs> All of the wrath of God was poured out on Christ at the cross. So you don't have to worry. God's not going to punish you. He may push you in another direction. He may leave you to your, you know, if you're, you know, if you're 
look at the prodigal son. You know, he didn't punish the son. You know what happened? The son found out, you know, apart from his father and apart from his father's house, things got pretty bad, especially when you live the way he did. But in all of that, do you ever see the father punishing the son? No. The father welcomed him back with open arms. And there's the difference between um, correction and there's a, a discipline and punishment. We use the term synonymously. You know, like when I would get grounded for something, it was punishment. <laughs> God, you know, the, when you look at the Bible, the way God punishes is by obliteration. He wipes cities off of the face of the planet and from the history of Earth. <laughs> That's how he rolls. So you don't have to worry about that, though, because Christ took all of that. You so I don't know why I went on that tangent, but when you endure times of trial and suffering, that's not God punishing you. Odds are, um, it's just a natural circumstance because we live in a fallen world, or something that I've noticed people do overlook. There is a real devil. There are real demons, and they really don't like Christians. <laughs> they don't want they don't want Christians to to walk with God because if you're connected to the true vine you've got power if you don't walk, stay connected to the true vine dance puppets dance so three quick reasons uh, that you can you know write down if you're taking notes to that we can rejoice in the face of trial instead of worry because I don't know about you you know when I face trial I still have to buck the resist I have to buck the urge to worry about it worrying as Jesus says you know doesn't add a you know a single moment to what's coming you know it's not going to change anything don't worry about tomorrow tomorrow will take care of itself but the first reason why we can rejoice instead of worry in the face of trial is because we know the character of God you'll hear uh people who teach the bible like myself like tony you know any any bible teacher worth <laughs> their uh worth their wages is going to encourage people to read the scriptures because it's through the scriptures that we learn about the character of god the bible says very clearly that jesus is the image of the invisible god if we want to know how jesus feels or how god feels about us we look at jesus if we want to know how God would deal with a certain situation, we look at Jesus. That's how we know the character of God. And when we understand and we know the character of God, and, you know, that gives us confidence to know that regardless of what's happening in the circumstance, it's going to work out in the end. Number two is that we know what the Bible says about his heart towards us. We read, uh, Jesus tells the story about the shepherd that left the 99 behind to go get the one sheep that was led astray. The story about the prodigal son and his father welcomes him back with open arms. Sorry. Uh, we know what the, uh, uh, we can rejoice because we know what the Bible says about God's heart towards us. God's first reaction towards the woman caught in adultery wasn't, boom, strike you dead. You know what it was? 
turning to the rest of the people who were passing judgment as if they were better than she and saying, those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he picked her up, he, t he dusted her off and said, go and sin no more. That's how God deals with us. Sometimes I wonder about these people who uh, will come up to me and say, oh, well, God's really rough and tumble with me, and he's all just like, suck it up, jerk, and deal with that. And I'm like, I have trouble seeing, uh, you know, the loving, uh, passionate Christ be like, suck it up, jerk face, you know? <laughs> I just don't see the Holy Spirit talking to people like that. But at the same time, hey, your walk is your walk, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, you know, jerk face was a term of endearment in your house. If so, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll pray for you. Uh, but we know that as we read the scriptures, that God's heart towards mankind, even when you look back into Genesis, the fall, God was completely within his rights and authority to immediately strike Adam and Eve dead and send them to eternal punishment. But he didn't. He is the one who provided the first blood sacrifice for the covering of sin. It says that he took animals and he made uh, cloths of animal, you know, clothes out of animal skins for them. God himself killed those animals. The blood of those animals covered their sins for a time. You know, so we know that the character of God towards us, mankind, is of love from the very beginning even at our very first mistake as a race. The plan of redemption, you know, he's, you know, he knew that it was going to be. He didn't want robots who weren't going to love in return and were going to respect in return. He got that with the animals. We as the only creatures created in his image, he knew we were going to mess up, like you said, and he chose to love us and put the plan of salvation in effect anyway. You you bring up a very good point, Marie. It's like I sometimes go back and I think about the fact that you know I wonder what that conversation inside the Trinity was like when it said what you know when he said let us make man in our image, and maybe it just wasn't caught in the scripture. But you know I want if they had to it because they know see the end from the beginning. It just blows my mind that at that moment that Jesus was like I'm going to enter into history and I want to pay for that mistake. It blows my mind okay number three the third reason why we can rejoice over worry um, is that we know that regardless of our natural end we have an eternity I'm, I'm repeating a lot of points here but you know honestly there's three verses <laughs> and uh, Jesus said don't fear him who can destroy the body but fear him who can destroy the soul we, <laughs> we we have a built-in programmed response towards life preservation. It's just how we're programmed. And I'm not saying we, you know, let's go jump off a bridge for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I think a lot of times we don't realize that when we're signing up for Christianity, we're pretty much counting ourselves a dead man. You know, we, we're signing on the dotted line. We're saying we're no longer going to live to ourselves, but we're going to live unto Christ. And that comes with a sacrifice. Sometimes that sacrifice is in our daily lives. Sometimes that sacrifice is 
something you pay for with your life. Um, I, I talked to somebody the other day, and they were saying, like, it's so weird that, you know, it used to be that Christianity was mainstream, and now it's getting hostile. And uh, it brought me back to a comic that I had read <laughs> a few days before. In the comic, you know, somebody was saying the same thing, and they replied, no, it's been like this in the rest of the world since Jesus ascended. When you think about it, the fact that Christianity was embraced and was a social norm in America for as long as it was, that's an anomaly in the rest of the world. People have been getting killed for being Christians since the first century in the rest of the world. But even in that, we, we see, in, when we read through the book of Revelation, you know, one of the things that John sees is all the people that died as martyrs, and they're rejoicing before the throne. This body, this time that we have, it's so small in the light of eternity. The, you know, our, our life is like a chain, you know, a length of chain that's held up. We've got one end here, we've got the other one, you know, here. And, you know, you could stretch that chain around the world 70 times. It would represent, you know, like, you know, the history of the world. And you've just got this one little short portion of it. But that's just this side of eternity. Jesus said that he would be coming back for us, that he's preparing a place for us in our, in, in our, in our father's house, that should we suffer, should we die, should we <laughs> experience tremendous evil on this side of the border, God won't only redeem that here, he'll redeem it there. And there it's redeemed forever. I go back at least once a week and I read Revelation 21 and 22. Because I have to remember, even, especially as a father, I see what our world is becoming. And I, you know, I pray that my child, maybe children, will have the resolve. Because I understand it's not getting any better. It's going to get more difficult. That they would have the resolve to stand for Christ in the midst of what's to come. It's all undeserved grace. I, I still get dumbfounded as I look back at my life. I went to high school with uh, Kristen and Justin. It's weird. I actually used to take karate with Justin. And we used to play video games, hang out, have sleepovers, all that type of stuff. And I've known him for a long time. And both of them they don't get it like they know that the transformation was jesus and as i look back on, on who i was i don't even recognize that person everything that god has done in my life i never deserved it because gosh i was rotten <laughs> i still can be and that's the that is a thing that i see a lot um and I've uh, I've been uh, talking with people about that a lot recently. There's this thing, especially in American Christianity, where we feel where church service on a Sunday will become like a sin inventory check. Oh, are you doing this? We'll stop it. Are you doing this? We'll stop it. But the Sunday church service was meant to come together and celebrate the grace of God. 
yeah, we celebrate and we worship God because we got this undeserved gift, you know? We we bask in the glory of his mercy towards us and we do our good works from a place of adoration rather than a place of obligation. And sometimes you know, when we don't revel in the glory of the mercy of God enough, we'll start to do things out of obligation. Because we have to do this. Oh, I have to go to the Bible study. I have to do this. I have to pray so many times a day. This and that. And, you know, it was the apostles weren't working because they were afraid of losing their salvation. They did what they did with such passion and such fervor because they understood the strength of the grace of God that their performance wasn't what was ensuring their eternity that Jesus held their eternity going back to the illustration of the chain if you have the two ends of a chain if you don't have something holding that up on one end or the other the whole thing falls down our lives are that chain and God is what holds it up and <laughs> I don't know, you know, I I know that I see where you know a lot of uh, pastors and teachers they try to put on this uh, super Christian face thing where they've got their stuff together, but all that does is really create like a competitive society within the church to see who's the you know the least bad sinner, um, <laughs> which means you're all struggling with pride and need to repent. But uh, I. I don't know. I, I don't know other way to put it except for I'm so marveled at the grace of God because I'm I know. I know where I've been and I know what my heart was like and can still be like, and that the free gift of grace, you know, <laughs> that that you know Jesus understanding all of that from the beginning before I was even a glimmer in my parents' eye, uh, chose said, "Yep, gonna die for him. I've chosen him. He's elect. He's in my kingdom." And I don't know. I get overwhelmed by that. And that's the thing. You know, we we want to do good things for God. We want to further the kingdom. But it's so easy to slip into the do this, don't do that mode instead of the let's do this because God did this. I heard a pastor once compare our ministry works um, you know, just it, as people in the church, it's kind of like when you're a when you're a parent and your child draws you a picture when they're really young, and they bring it to you and they're like, "Look at what I drew for you," you know. That's what it's like. Look at this church that we made. You know, look at this ministry we built. It's God's looking at that and like, "Oh, cool." And it's like, you know, we colored outside the lines for some reason. This cat is four different colors. One of them is pink. Um, you know, all these things that's like, you know, but we, what, you know, I know as a father, you know, I still have the first picture my daughter ever did actually draw. It was of me being a mouse person. Just because. I don't know why. That's my daughter's like, this is you if you were a mouse. I love you, daddy, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm not, it's not going to make it into the Louvre, but it was the heart behind why she was doing it. You know, it, and that's kind of what our works are, you know, in salvation, you know, out of adoration. We, 
you know, we have these little scribbled drawings that we do because we love God. And, <laughs> you know, ultimately, he's the one who bought the crayons, <laughs> you know? So I don't know how we got on that tangent, but that was really good. It's going to be something that develops as God takes you through those trials. Um, because, you know, I... I have not passed any trial, I would say, um, but I have noticed that there is a progressive change as trials come. God is developing steadfastness. It's one of those things that he's going to continue to develop until, you know, I, I do cross over to the big Taco Bell in the sky. I'm just joking. Heaven is not a Taco Bell. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, um, yeah. Okay, I just can see it right now. Tony's going to listen to this and he's going to post on Facebook or something. Heaven is not Taco Bell, Pastor Mike Kessler. And now that I've said that, he's definitely going to do that. So, um, yeah, I, Dan, you can erase it out if you want. Odds are you won't because it's funny. 